The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This episode is brought to you by Ramshirts.com, the company that brought you Crush City Tees. Ramshirts offers custom printed and embroidered apparel. They offer direct-to-garment printing for small runs and screen printing for larger runs. Follow them on Twitter and Instagram at Ramshirts. Visit Ramshirts.com for all your custom apparel needs. And listeners of this podcast, enter promo code BASEBALL and you will receive 25% off your order. It is now time for Astros Baseball with special guest, Den Man. Welcome to Astros Baseball, a podcast by a fan. For the fans of the Houston Astros, here is your host, Rob Fontenot. Hey guys, thanks for tuning into this episode of Astros Baseball. My guest today is the grandson of Judge Roy Hoffines. Din, man, Din, thanks for uh, coming on the show tonight. Delighted to be here anytime. And thanks for waiting for me to eat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I didn't want you to eat during the podcast. That would be some bad audio. So I guess you and I were following each other on Twitter. And then one day I just happened to read your bio and it said uh, my grandfather built the Astrodome, and that's when I asked you about it, and I was just, I, I, I can't believe I never even noticed it. Uh, you so, know, I don't, I, I, first of all, that, that, that shows the, the narcissistic nature of Twitter, by definition, is that people don't read the other person's bio hardly ever, and it's funny how, you know, you communicate with people and you spend time with them, but you know they're never really parked on your page checking out who you are and how you're wired and you know, it's something I po- I post things here and there to to give uh, not so subtle clues because I'm pretty proud of it. Some people hide from that kind of thing, but anyway, I appreciate you you taking the time to read the Twitter bio. You're you're the you're this you're the third person who's ever done that. <laughs> See, and there's probably plenty of other people that would love to have you on their show, but they don't take the time to read the bio, and that's Swing. that's their loss. Swing and a miss. Swing and a miss. <laughs> so let's let's start this off talking about the Astrodome. Your grandpa built it. That's what we'll we'll call it. Um, he did he own he owned the Astros or the Colt Forty Fives, right? He was part of a group that you know persuaded baseball to award a franchise to Houston. And this was at a time when Houston was competing to become a major league city. And the only thing I'll correct about building the Astrodome. You know, it took a lot of people to build the Astrodome. He created the Astrodome. So, he, you know, he was the person who envisioned it. He was the person who championed the idea. He was inspired by a variety of things that led him to come up with that. And seeing the Roman Coliseum and standing there and 
taking a look at that and really studying it and just having the inspiration to ask himself, well, the way this is shaped and the way that works, how hard would it be to put a cap on it? What would that look like? How would that work? You know, knowing that Houston was a town that had weather challenges and complications and humidity and mosquitoes and all of these other reasons to not put a team there that would play outdoors in the summer. And he got together with some prominent business people in Houston. They were trying to come up with this thing on their own. And they had run into some walls and they they singled out my grandfather as this mover and shaker and can-do, larger-than-life Texas personality who could be a front person for the for the entire effort. And so it, it involved uh, Bob Smith and Kirksey and many others uh, who were part of this group that wanted to have a professional team in Houston. There was going to be a baseball league called the Continental League. And Major League Baseball didn't want the Continental League to ever happen. So they awarded, they expanded and awarded one team to New York to prevent the Continental League from forming. Houston was going to be another team in that Continental League. And so there was a competition to get that other expansion spot. And the vision of the Astrodome and the selling of the story about having this first dome stadium, a world-class, game-changing type of venue, would give baseball not only a team in a large, growing, and relevant city, but also would give the sport this energizing marketing platform called the first dome stadium in the world. And so it, that's how it worked, and that's, that's how it happened. And a lot of sweat and a lot of tension, and there was a whole political process to get the approval, and, you know, how do you do that, and how do you do it in a city that, that you know, still had other challenges? And my grandfather was just um, a person who refused to lose. And it was really about winning the day and making this happen and realizing that vision and getting it orchestrated, getting it executed, getting uh, uh, people to support it of all races, from all neighborhoods. And it was a very important part of his legacy, more so than the building itself, was what it represented uh, to people from all kinds of backgrounds coming together to be supportive of something in a city that was more progressive than a lot of other cities in the South, largely because of his influence and because of his principle and, and the compass that he used to drive him to help make Houston a world-class destination. He loved it, loved it with all of his might. How old were you when this was happening? So the Astrodome and I are almost like twins. Uh -huh. And I joke that it's, I don't know which one of us is in better shape, uh, <laughs> which is, a, which is a, a shot at myself, I guess, at this point. And, but the Dome was 1965. I was born in 1965. I was in the hospital when the Dome opened uh, in an incubator and had, you know, jaundice and was just a premature baby. And my mom was going to get to that game. She got to the game and my dad was going to get to that game. They got to the game. I was in the hospital. I was okay. I wasn't in, in severe peril. I've given them a hard, you know, I gave my parents a hard time about that for years. And, um, but no, so my story really collides. And I say that in a positive way that it mirrors the life of the Astrodome to a great extent. And, you know, it's, what a great, it's a great, I don't know, it's a great honor to have the Astrodome as a brother. So on that, uh, podcast from Ben Ryder. There's a uh, one episode kind of gives you a 
a history lesson on the Astrodome. And I believe, is that your mom that is speaking on that? Or are you familiar that's my with this? Mom. That, yeah, that's my mom. I, 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 uh, I, you, you, it's a privilege to ever coach, coach any of your parents at anything. So, you know, there was some coaching involved there with talking to her about what to, what to anticipate and to be prepared to, to represent. She didn't need much of my help because mom, uh, in her own right, has just, just this wonderful memory and spark. And, you know, she was an, and she was an intimate part of what happened in the Astrodome. I mean, everything that happened in the Astrodome, at the Astrodome from a marketing standpoint and really from a standpoint of beyond sports, was my mom. I mean, she she was the person who entertained, uh, you know, Grace Kelly when she came to the Astrodome and and was uh, involved, you know, in a way that, that uh, was profoundly important in terms of getting Frank Sinatra to come and, you know, do a concert and have an appearance at the Astrodome and, and to have... Uh, Andy Williams and to have Muhammad Ali and to have all these different types of folks come in and put on events beyond baseball games. She was just right in the middle of that. Uh, mom, you know, Elvis Presley came to the Astrodome. Mom was at the, you know, at the forefront of making that happen, orchestrating that. And she was a super creative person and is a super creative person. So she really held her own in that podcast. I was proud of her and talked to her every day, she's 77 years old. So, you know, she's, uh, She's the daughter of the dome, and I and I'm and I'm a brother of the dome. Hmm. I, wait a minute, I, no, that's not that's definitely not in the right order. Anyway, she's <laughs> she's my mom, and the and the dome's my brother. I guess that makes the dome one of her kids, which is a little freaky. So, in that podcast episode, I guess they were driving, and she kind of gave him the idea of somehow about it, right? Didn't she have something to do yeah, with mom? Mom had this, uh, so she loved to go to ball games with her dad because that was a time when she had his attention. Uh, he was a really busy person as a mayor and county judge, and 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 this his his mind was a mile a minute. And so they were on their way to a ball game, which was which was her her daddy daughter time. So he was a he was a girl dad before that became a hashtag. And mm-hmm. they were on their way to a game, and it was pouring down rain as it you know tends to do in Houston here and there, and. She was like, well, why can't they just play the game inside? And he looked at her, and he had had this um, contemplation in looking at architecture and having this fascination with architecture. And, you know, that was the thing that, that you know, put him, took him from third base to home plate, was like, that's the answer. That's the solution. That's what we have to do. And I think he accused her of, you know, taking his, uh, I think he used the expression smart pills. Um, and so she, you know, she she'll she'll cherish that as long as long as she lives, and and probably long after. So the Astros were known as the Colt Forty Fives first, and they played in Colt Stadium, which was actually where the Astrodome parking lot is. So that stadium there, it was just something to have while they were coming up with the. It I was mean, that, always, that it wasn't was, a really yeah, nice was a, stadium, right? It was a it was a temporary facility. That was a magnet for mosquitoes the size of of uh, birds, and that stadium got moved down to Mexico, if I remember the story right. And it was a stadium that was useful for decades after it was moved, picked up and moved. You know the way you see these double wides going down the highway, wide loads. Um, imagine that going down to 
somewhere in Mexico, and and it became a facility that was that was that was repurposed. So a recycled stadium is what that was. And meanwhile, the Astrodome's going up in the background and looking like a spaceship that landed in the middle of the Texas prairie. And it was an amazing juxtaposition. The cars of that day and age, that's the thing that really blows me away too, is just seeing Colt Stadium in the foreground, Astrodome in the background, or these old cars that were of, of that time that made you realize how ahead of time that building was and all the things inside of it that blazed this trail for all the amazing revenue streams that exist in sports today. What age is your first memory of being at the Astrodome? Man, I, I was there as a, as a three-year-old, and they're doing a Life magazine photo shoot, and I still find those photos all the time. In fact, I posted one today, and someone made this comment about uh, the snozberries taste like snozberries, and it was just like, well, that's just really a perfect reference because it was Willy Wonka's chocolate factory to me as a little kid. So I'm, you know, I'm at the perfect age to sort of grow up with that building and really stomp around behind the scenes. You talk about people, people talk about stomping grounds and they're, and they're gr- visiting their grandparents' houses. I mean, that was, that was going to my granddad's house. That was the place that, that I grew up. And <laughs> I spent my springs in, in cocoa at spring training. And, and I spent my summers in the Astrodome and stomping around behind the scenes as a little kid, really trying to, to broadcast the games in sort of my own little window of that amazing f- facility in terms that he had as a as a uh, an entertaining quarters beyond right field, way up high beyond right field, amazing spot. Not the best place to watch a game. I'd much rather sit right behind home plate. For, for yeah. some reason, we we were perched up there, and I would sit there and I would just just like we're doing right here, except alone. I'd be calling the games, listening to Lowell Pass, and listening to Gene Elston, and and I'd have my as when I, when I got to where I could read is probably how I learned to read was these these pregame notes packages written by the PR staff of the Astros and some amazing people who were part of that group. I mean, the Astros while they weren't amazing on the field, they they had a you know a few just like they had some great players who they let get away because I think that you know managing a baseball team and owning a baseball team that's it's we've learned a lot about how that needs to be managed. And it's not just an entertainment deal. Uh, but yeah, I, I was, I was behind the scenes there and from the, the, the Giles family, which went on to become legendary with the Phillies. Um, Bill Giles was one of the first guys at the Astros in terms of PR and his involvement and what he did to work with my mom on the marketing side and whatnot. Uh, it, it's really where sports became a family to me. So I, I grew up in the stadium, but I also grew up with the people. Um, everybody from Donald Davidson, who was the first, who was an early stage traveling secretary to the, the different managers and remembering my interactions with them and being being fined as little boys by Leo DeRocher because my mm-hmm. brother had left two baseballs in a spot where players could trip on them. And we were fined five bucks and it got written up in the paper. And it was pretty embarrassing and and I, I my brother and I still sort of dispute whose 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 fault it was that those baseballs got left out but it got us a press clipping and it became a, an interesting little item for our for our life stories it must have been amazing as a kid you know having that like you said as your grandpa's house like did you realize like what you had as far as 
having a grandpa like that compared you know, to other kids? Was that pretty obvious to you? It's hard not to notice that you have a level of privilege that um, was envied and that you should be thankful for and take note of. And he was always very good about making sure that, that we understood that. And it wasn't that we got to cut every line. It wasn't that we, in fact, you know, I just, it's, it's still to this day, there's an awkwardness to having that kind of a, of a, of a shadow. And yeah, some people run from it and deny it and pretend that they were, that they hit a triple when they were born on third base. I, mm-hmm. I look at it the opposite way. I, I've always embraced the fact that, that, I, that I had this opportunity and what I've always wanted to do is, is try to live up to that and live up to the belief that the, that type of opportunity needs to be created. You need to be more of a spark for people so they can unlock their potential. And, you know, I, I was always wired that way. And, you know, I could have turned out, I guess, a lot of different ways. You, you see a lot of people who, who come from power or come from money or come from authority. And there's a level of, of uh, I, I, stubbornness, maybe, and, and maybe also this determination to, like, prove that you're worthy of this, of this uh, notoriety. I can't really call it fame. I can't really call it celebrity, but notoriety. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and you don't, so you shouldn't, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's luck. It's luck to a great extent that if you're born a certain way with a certain combination of factors and parents who are, I, I don't know, I'm kind of a mixture of, of my mom, my dad and my grandfather. And, and I, and I embrace all of it because you're, it's good fortune if, if uh, for whatever reason, the right parts rub off on you and the wrong parts don't. So it's obvious all the kids in school knew that that was your they, grandfather. They generally did. I, you know, there were kids, it was great back in the day because it wasn't such a deal where everybody kind of wore it on their sleeve. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't somebody who was going to necessarily keep score. I, I didn't have thank look, thank God I didn't have friends who like <laughs> wanted to be friends with me because of right. who my grandfather was. Now, it may have been that they're like, wow, I got to ride his coattails a little bit because I can get free tickets to the game. I'll tell you this, working in baseball for 17 years in a later part of my journey, it was a little bit more clear to me that some people were friendly because they wanted favors. As a kid, you're just kids who are playing ball together and having a great time. And, and there wasn't this level of electronic uh, communication and access for people to really connect the dots and say, oh, that kid is such and such. We were just so young that we were little kids in carpools together who played on the same t-ball team and or we were neighbors who lived on the same street. So we hung out because of that. Uh, you know, I live next door to Billy Earthman. And Billy was one of my great friends. And he just happened to be a friend by coincidence because we were next door neighbors. And we lived, um, you know, and we lived over near um, Westheimer and, and um, that area in Tanglewood. And we were on a street called Deerwood. And Billy lived next door to me. And Billy and I were buddies. And his last name was Earthman. And they had Earthman Funeral Homes. And I didn't really know much about Earthman Funeral Homes. I heard of them. Their, their signs were out in front of their places. Again, there were only like three or four television stations, so you didn't know as much about everything at that point. Unless there was an expose by Marvin Zindler, you, you just, everything was just what it was. You know, we were kind of oblivious kids. 
but he was just a great friend. And we happened to, you know, go to, he was, he was friends with me and, and we went to baseball games together a lot. Kid named Andy Osborne. And it's funny, Facebook brought a lot of us kind of back together, but mm -hmm. we were all just friends because we were friends. Yeah. So the, the judge had the, it was an apartment or is that what it, is that what it was called? It or was called, it was called an, a, a penthouse. Living, it's, the penthouse was at Astroworld Hotel. Okay. And man, that thing was fantastic, exotic, and you know a little creepy here and there, uh, but just some amazing things in there that that represented different parts of the world and 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 some rather you know bizarre taste in, yeah. in you know the the finer things club to him or or you know the treat yourself uh, brand of 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 goods and and decor uh, was I guess intriguing is the best way to put it. Some of it would scare the hell out of you, and uh, other other parts of it were just like, okay, it's fascinating. All of a sudden, we know we're basically in Rome in Houston. How is this happening? Or, or you know, whatever other part of the world he had he had gotten stuff from. He was a collector of of a lot of sort of eclectic uh, things, and so uh, the, the dome had a, a living quarters in it that had a swimming pool, that had a shooting gallery, it had a little barber shop type thing it had a bowling lane and going all the way around the bowling lane was a, a miniature golf uh putting green thing and then there was also uh, uh a circus room and a <laughs> billiard table billiard room there was a, a a theater although i don't really remember the theater being a thing because I, I don't even know what films were available to you know, it's not like now where you can call up Disney Plus and, you know, yeah. whatever your favorite Disney movie is. It was more of a you know, theater for, for show to play a film of some kind that, that you got your hands on. But, yeah, it was uh, over the top, uh, over the top, but under the roof. And it was uh, pretty, pretty remarkable. And you look back at that and you sort of think it was, there was a presidential suite there. Really, a lot of that was because he and LBJ were friends and, and LBJ came and came to the first game. And, and it was literally a presidential suite. And the place for the president of the United States to stay and, you know, fit for that. But if you think mm -hmm. back about what the Astrodome was, it was a flag in the planet for the city. And it was a way to attract businesses and people. It was the ultimate calling card for Houston. And so it was really treated as this marketing tool and this billboard. And he had a home in Houston. So there, you know, it's sort of a, a urban legend to an extent that he really lived in there. He just had a place that was fit for royalty to come and spend time and, and be a part of this, this magnificent facility that changed the, changed the world. It didn't just change Houston. It didn't just change the United States. It changed the world. That's what I was going to ask you. The, uh, the one that's in the dome, did he stay there like during homestands or was it just he, somewhere y'all hung he, out? He, he did not. I, I, you know, it was interesting because it was, uh, again, we would go there and we would be there. But it was, I don't know, it was almost awkward to, to like, stay there. Even I, it, I didn't do it as, like, sleepovers with kids. And I mentioned those, those friends that I had. I think here and there we stayed there overnight. Uh, but it was always, you know, part of the ritual was to get to the game early, go to the game, and leave afterward. And if there were people who were coming who were going to be part of a concert or part of a, a, a different you know, type of deal that involved a bunch of dignitaries, then that was available to them.
you know, so if Sinatra came or if Elvis Presley came or if Evil Knievel came or if the if the March Madness thing was going to happen, I remember. I, so I, I actually became great friends late late in in this gentleman's life, Eddie Einhorn, and Eddie was one of the part owners of the White Sox later on. But Eddie was intimately involved in the sort of the orchestration of the famous UCLA U of H basketball game that was played in the dome. And Eddie was just, you know, raved about, you know, just the vision of the place and, and how that, that's how March Madness was born, how that's where, where and when March Madness was born. So, you know, the dome, well, the dome's my brother, the dome uh, fathered a lot more exciting, gigantic, amazing, larger than life types of uh, activities and innovations uh, than I, than, 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 maybe, than I have. <laughs> you brought up evil Knievel. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know what age this cuts off, but people that are younger than me, like people that are too young to know who Evil Knievel is and what a big deal that guy was. I mean, he was like every little boy's hero. Yeah, that was wrestling before wrestling to some extent. You know, it was just like as a stunt guru i remember those movie hooper with burt reynolds but this was like the real life stunt man who would jump over a bunch of cars on his motorcycle and and daredevil you know that was he was the daredevil man he was the he was like a superheroic type figure until i'll tell you what ruined it for me was seeing the movie that they made i wish they had never made it because it's still to this day the only movie i ever walked out of in the theater it was called viva knievel and that, so, you know, the expression of jump the shark is referring to happy days and, and um, the fawns literally jumping over the shark on a, on, a, on a lake on water skis. And that was when you knew happy days had, had, had met its demise. But I think the making of the movie Viva Knievel was like, okay, uh, I, guess he's, I guess he's had his 15 minutes or 15 years or, or whatever it was. But yeah, Evil Knievel. The the Bobby Riggs and uh, Billie Jean King tennis match was another one that, you know, really was just you know a made for the dome event. And Muhammad Ali loved the dome. It was a it was a place where he you know where the greatest athlete would would play in the greatest building, and he got a real kick out of that. Yeah, I remember the battle of the sexes as well. Um, so let me ask you this: um, I know one thing that's amazing to me and this is just me making a comment, is that when you see the Dome, I, I remember the, the, the Astrodome was the first game I ever went to, and I remember turning the corner and seeing it and just being amazed, you know, because I've heard about it, read about it, saw it on the Bad News Bears, you know, all these different things. And, and I mean, it was a pretty awesome sight to see that thing. And but now next to Reliant Stadium, it looks really small. And that's really shocking to me. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a little bit of a trick of the eye because um, the dome goes pretty far underground. And people thought that, you know, home runs didn't fly there because it was a dome. But it didn't fly there because the dome had this um, they dug down. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's about three levels below below ground. So it's it's not really a fair fight. It's it's like. You know the dome is standing in a ditch, and and Reliant is on stilts. And it's it's uh, it, it's 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 actually um, fairly thoughtless the way that was designed, orchestrated almost deliberately to make 
the dome uh, an afterthought. When in reality, I, look, I see the future of the complex, and I, I know what should happen. I know what I'll I will advocate for, and the dome has its his, its historic distinction, and and nobody wants it just to waste away. It's just ridiculous. And but the reality is, the whole complex is going to need the right kind of facelift. I mean, it's just it's it's embarrassing actually to me that that Arlington, Texas, has has done all these different things to try to become this hub of major events and has done so successfully and despite you know some of the memes and, and jokes you see about the new the new ballpark i think that the inside of that ballpark's pretty cool and you know people are having fun with with what it looks like to an extent uh, but you know what they've done is they've they've we haven't kept up with the joneses and literally in this case because it's jerry jones to a great extent and what's happened with that complex and you see what's happened in denver with what they've done to develop their ballparks and what they've done to, to create activity is that the rodeo needs something that's going to make more sense for them. Even the Texans, I mean, you hear enough complaints about everything else going on with the organization right now, but even they you know, need something that's going to make more sense. And there needs to be more in the way of leadership and planning and vision and execution around that so that it's a positive um, destination and so that it's a positive solution, so that it's exciting. And so there's something that continues the innovation that needs to occur. Houston's made, Houston is an energy town. Energy is innovation. And so that's, you know, you see that and you look at the, like the design and, and the juxtaposition and it's, 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 it's just, uh, I, I don't even know how to say it other than you got this thing and you got this historic thing in a ditch and you've got this other I don't even want to say cookie cutter, but you have this other facility that's on stilts and mm. it doesn't, doesn't jibe. Um, and that's wrong. There's just, there's plenty of uh, architectural creativity in that town. And, you know, frankly, through what I've seen in my, in my travels and in my work, I mean, having worked in baseball, but also spending 10 years in, in markets like Atlanta and, and Kansas city and Phoenix and growing up in LA, uh, some amazing things are happening out there and that are, that make great economic sense. And this is just about vision and it's about leadership and it's about excitement and about representing, you know, Houston needs to represent. And there's some really cool things that have happened on the field for all of those teams, Astros, Rockets, Texans, and, mm -hmm. you know, more great things need to happen, but we got to live up to who we are and what we are and how we're wired. So my last question I had for you, I know I wanted to get into your career and we'll, we'll do that another time. Sure. Uh, Cause we wanted to keep this at 30 minutes, but what would you like to uh, see done with the Astrodome? Well, I, I, I believe that, you know, you see this notion of what happens at, with uh, a thing called LA live and what's happened with the St. Louis ballpark village and what's happened to create a level of uh, surrounding excitement and, and surrounding options that you know give a, a vibrancy to the to the whole complex that we just need to bring life back into the complex and we need to have revenue streams that come out of that. There needs to be parking revenue that gets generated. There needs to be uh, entertainment options that work in the city. I mean, I've always envisioned, you know, potentially that you know significant and significant renovation with business sense that ties into a lot of things going on with the future of 
of the need for kids to have more places to, to learn and for longevity to be something that's emphasized for, for athletes as they, as they grow old and as they progress, that there's some really exciting things that we can do that can be done and I believe will be done to make it a vibrant part of a reimagined complex. And the county owns the land, the county has the building and it has the, the capability to be um, improved in a way that's not a costly and ridiculous project. That if you incorporate it into what the needs are and what the future should look like for, call it hockey in Houston and call it a better rodeo situation in Houston and even the Texan situation to help really revamp that and to make it something that's thoughtful and that is economically um, impressive. So it's about, it's about solutions and really it's about can the bones and the original design of the Astro be incorporated into how that whole complex is going to evolve? And I think the answer is yes, and I believe that's what's going to occur. Well, I definitely hope it will uh, be turned into something and used for something. Uh, I love the Astrodome. A lot of Astro fans love it, and they want they you know they want to see it being used. And uh, but anyway, that's all I got, Dan. I appreciate you coming on tonight. All right, bud. Well, I look forward to talking about you know more more current events and and, and a lot of exciting things. I salute you for what you're doing. And as I told you before we got on the air, that I want to I want to commend you for how you how you handle yourself and how you represent your family and 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 what you've gone through in your own journey that, you know, we've all got uh, a lot to be um, thankful for, but also a lot to understand about about what our uh, challenges have been. So I really salute you and think the world of of how you're conducting yourself and what you're doing with this podcast. And and it's great to interact and see that people on Twitter are actually real. All right. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you coming on. Uh, That's it for this episode. We'll see you next time on Astros Baseball. Thanks for listening to this episode of Astros Baseball. Make sure to subscribe so that way you will be alerted when there is a new episode. Follow Rob on Twitter at Rob Fontenot. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.